know that you have profited much by listening to them. And uh, <clears throat> I look forward to today when uh, Jason will be up here at one point or another. I did, uh, when Richard asked, I did suggest, well, Richard, or Jason, did you want to do it? I would certainly step aside, but maybe that day will come sooner than you think. So, Anyway, <clears throat> I'm not going to be Pastor John. I can't talk that fast. I'm going to talk more of the speed of uh, Pastor Joe and Pastor Richard, so I won't go quite so fast. Now, if it, you think I'm taking too long, just kind of give me an indication. That's fine. I'm not... Uh, Uh, I think I might have prepared more than I really need this morning. It's a little hard to judge because the last time I preached it was in Toronto and that's with an interpreter and that's an entirely different matter altogether. So the title that I have for this this morning is The Necessity of Must. Now in the passage of John chapter 3 that we'll read in a few moments, It's a very familiar one. Perhaps we have known it, or at least a good portion of it since childhood. And certainly John 3.16 comes first to mind uh, at at the very get-go. That's so ingrained in our thinking if we were raised in the church at all. And without distracting from its central message, I like to focus on a thread or theme that runs through this chapter. Jesus is expanding his ministry now, and he's becoming more widely known and has made a stir in Jerusalem. Remember, he began in Cana with the first miracle there, and then he came down south, and he's, he's becoming more widely known. And the crowds have thronged Jerusalem during this feast time, and the Son of Man is revealing himself much more than he had at this point than ever before. And as we begin this morning, it's not for us to have a list of things. We all have different kinds of lists. Often they're written down or kept by a memory, if you have a good memory. And believe me, I don't have a good memory anymore, not like I used to. And my wife will confirm that because she'll call it sometimes a relative memory or a selective memory. And especially if you men go to the grocery stores for your wives. And if you don't carry a list, you're likely to be in trouble. That happens. And even with a list, you can be in trouble because you can get the right item or you can get the right thing, but not the right carton size, not the right brand. So even then, if you aren't specific, you can get in trouble. My father used to carry around in his pocket, you know, a little spiral notebook with a pencil. And he used to call it his brains because as you get older, you have to write things down. So there's a list. It could be facts, figures. It could be my wife was even reminding me uh, the other day that she told him a joke, and he actually wrote the joke down. I mean, that's how, how it got with him. These items in on our list will be of different levels of importance, though. Some are very, very important. Some are important but not critical. Some are, are things that we might want to do, you know, fun items. We might even have a bucket list, or if we can use that term, a bucket list of things that we would like to do. Some items are no more than just a dream or a wish, but we want to do them, or we'd like to do them if we could someday. We might say it another way. There are some things we must do. 
There are some things we want to do. Maybe there are dreams we wish we could do or want to do someday. There may be even some things we fear to do. We all have our foibles. Spiders, snakes, getting up in front of people and speaking. I mean, that's a, that's a trip, let me tell you. <clears throat> and it's not an easy thing to do. But some people can do it better than others. But these things cover every area of life, and we know that. We naturally think of love, marriage, children, jobs, spouse, security, education, and all those kinds of things. But fundamentally, that run, all, all that runs through this are the spiritual issues, which are even more important than these things. And it's in this last area that's most important because spiritual issues drive or direct everything else in our life. We know that. It reflects on who we are in the sight of the Lord and relationship to each other and how we relate to the world with these things. And, of course, we need to remember that God made us. That's both body and spirit. But sometimes we forget the spirit and we focus. Even as we've talked about Sunday school a little bit, sometimes we get focused on the body too much. Now, the body has its place, but the spirit, even as Paul indicates, is so much more important than the body in terms of eternity. Now, John chapter 3 takes us to three items that are a must that will directly impact each one of us. A must is something that is essential that we can't do without, it is a necessity. Think about those things in your life that are absolute necessities. You can't do without it. And if this must is not satisfied, it may carry with it some great consequence. A must is often associated with some imperative or sort of command that, you know, the Lord may give in the Bible. It's based on some necessity. A must is something that is not optional. It's not something that is a suggestion. It's not something which allows for argumentation or discussion. It's not something where some kind of negotiated is permitted. There are no deals to be made. A must can be and often is a hard thing. Many of us have found out, have found out that arguing or debating with the Lord is always a losing proposition. We never win. But sometimes we try and do it anyway. A must is not something that allows for a partial condition or a partial satisfaction. For example, you cannot be a little bit dead or you cannot be a little bit alive. You are either one or the other. It's a state of quality. It's a quality characteristic. For you children, let's say your parents have put you at the table, your dinner time, and you have something on your plate that you don't like, and one of your parents says, you can't leave the table until you eat and clean everything off your plate. And if it's something that you don't like, you could be there an awful long time. And if it was peas, I might be there all night. I don't like peas. <clears throat> but when you get done, or when you think you're done and want to leave the table, your, one of your parents would have to say, have you cleaned your plate? 
It's either a yes or a no. A partial will, will not do based on what the requirements were before. You must clean your plate. It's good for you. Even though you may not like it at the time, it's good for you. And so it's, it's an either or. There is no almost. Now there are three musts that we find in John chapter 3. And we're going to get there in a moment. The first is the must of John chapter 3 verse 7. The second is the must of John chapter 3 verse 14. And the third is the must of John chapter 3 verse 30. And these are necessarily connected. There's a progression of thought or purpose the apostle brings with this word he is writing. Now, turn to John chapter 3 verse 7. Um, or not John chapter 3 verse 7, just John chapter 3 because we'll read that in a, in a second or at least part of it, the first uh, nine verses. And I think it's in 887 if you, uh, with the Pew Bible there. I'm going to be reading from the New King James. I'm loath to, I've got an ESV, don't worry about that, but I'm loath to part with my New King James because it's broken in so well. Besides with the ESV, if I open it up, the pages may flip over, then I'm in trouble. Then I could be scrambling around up here a little more than I would want to be. But John, my first point here is you must be born again. You know that. Or you could say it this way, it's the necessity revealed. Let's read John chapter 3, 1 verse 9. We're going to be reading the whole chapter and chapter in a couple of sections here, but we need to kind of get the background narrative to, which help will flesh out things as we talk. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, or truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, or truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Many of you know the story of Nicodemus visiting Jesus that night. But some background information, even before chapter 3, is, is helpful and useful, even in, if you look at the last few verses of chapter 2. Jesus had done many miracles. He has come down from the north to Jerusalem. And he's done many miracles or signs among the people there in the beginning, you know, to broaden his ministry. And the Pharisees would have been those who have been witness to these wonders, these signs, to his teachings, and, and, and they would have been, there would have been lots of chatter. You know how people talk. A lot, of, a lot of sidebars, but there are lots of chatters, lots of discussions, many questions as the Son of Man continues on. They saw um, many wonders that were quite unique. And in, in really in his teaching, the assault on the prevailing thinking of what the Scriptures were saying. 
Some may have even begun to think of Jesus as a new prophet. John says that many believed in him, but that Jesus knew their hearts and he did not commit himself to them. Of course, we understand that this believing at this point was not a saving faith. Now, this visit with Nicodemus is a true event. I don't know how John got all the details, but he did. Maybe he was in the background when Nicodemus was talking there and he picked up on it, but certainly the Spirit of God revealed it to him to uh, and remember it to write it down. But in some sense, a picture of Nicodemus here is the best picture that man can offer himself to God. He's the best picture of man that can offer up, offer up himself to God. And he was a religious man. And yet, he was lost. He's in spiritual darkness. Perhaps we can put it this way by saying that he's dead man walking. Like walking down as it would before he would be executioned or brought to the electric chair or hanged or whatever they would do in, a, in the criminal system. He was that dead man walking. Look at who he is as the Bible shows him. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. Of course, we know that. And a leader of the Jews. We know that. Meaning that he's a member of the Sanhedrin. We know that. The ruling council of Israel. A pretty powerful group. He had his Ph.D. in Old Testament studies in Phariseeism. Well, equivalent to a Ph.D., he probably could tithe mint and cumin with the best of them. He was a religious teacher of Israel. We know that. That's what John states here. He was supposed to be a great master of the Old Testament scriptures in Israel. This means that he was among the educated and the ruling elite. By implication, he was a wealthy man. Most Pharisees were. Perhaps prideful. To what degree? It's hard to say. And a man who imagined himself superior to others. Let's put it this way. You don't get to be on the Sanhedrin and be a shrinking violet. I don't think that's the case. He might have been one of those who stood on the court or uttering prayers to be seen by others. And desired those choice seats sitting at uh, the weddings he attended. He's likely to have been given preferential treatment because of as his status as a Pharisee. Was he like the Pharisee who would pray and be glad he wasn't like that publican back there behind him? Don't think that Nicodemus is humble in his approach with Jesus here as he begins to open up that dialogue. He is merely polite and respectful. He's, in his approach, he's treating Jesus as a peer. He acknowledges that Jesus is a great teacher and the man God is working through. How could he not? He knows Jesus is not an run-of-the-mill teacher, though he does not have the run-of-the-mill teaching credentials. Jesus didn't. It wasn't taught like the Pharisees were. 
And some are beginning to realize that he's something more than just a teacher. He and others have recognized that God is working through this, this, this person, this Jesus. And yet Nicodemus doesn't understand all that's going on here. And he wants to dig deeper. What do all these signs and wonders mean? What does all this teaching point to? And it's even suggested that he, Nicodemus may have got the short straw and out of a group of you know, other Pharisees, and he was the one who got that task of you know, interviewing Jesus and going to see Jesus and to figure out more of what's going on. What's he really getting at? Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But he does come to Jesus to dig deeper, and we find Nicodemus face-to-face with Jesus. You wish you could have been there. That would have been very interesting. Nicodemus didn't get too many words out of his mouth, though, before Jesus sets the whole focus and tone of the encounter, does he? I'll tell you, I need to do much better in this area. I'm not a natural conversationalist like some of you are, and it's hard work. But Jesus very quickly turns the whole focus and in charge of the conversation and turns it all the way around. It's quite amazing. But how does Jesus respond to Nicodemus? He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one are born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It's with great emphasis. The narrative shows Nicodemus, of course, doesn't understand. Nicodemus was saying to a leading, or Jesus was saying to a leader teacher, leading teacher in Israel who was supposed to have known what the Word of God says, that he didn't understand it. You would have to imagine that Nicodemus was hurt a little bit. Nicodemus should have known by the written Word that no one of his own accord can approach God. And to be acceptable him in his own righteousness, in his own works. And all it does is point out is how far men and women have strayed from God's word. Even though they may have the best of religious teaching. Nicodemus' day is no different than our day. It just isn't. All you have to do is turn on the TV, look around and even visit other churches sometimes. And you get the point. Jesus said again, and when you have truly, truly, or most assuredly, you know when you have that double thing there, you know it's pretty important. Don't ignore it. Jesus said again, truly, truly, you must be born again. That is born from above. We know what that means. Born from God. Born of God. It's God's work. It's the Holy Spirit's work. And Jesus begins to point out the desperate need of Nicodemus and every man, every woman, every child born into this world. You must be born again. Even to see the kingdom of God. Jesus must make it personable 
or personal to Nicodemus. And yet, in his own ignorance, Nicodemus tries to deflect it. Yet Jesus sends that arrow straight to his own heart. And we know that in the future, Nicodemus, you know, <clears throat> that word is word does its work um, as the Holy Spirit works on Nicodemus's heart, it would appear. But Jesus was straight and true with his message, and he sent it where it needed to be. The kingdom that <clears throat> many such Jews had their, put their hopes on when Jesus brought up the whole issue of the kingdom of God, and we, it was even mentioned in Sunday school, but the Jews had a different idea of what that kingdom was to be. Something more physical, and certainly had to be physical in appearance, but it was coming via this one, the Son of Man, this Jesus. And that is the true kingdom of God. They had certainly a whole wrong idea of what it was to be like. He says, you must be born again if you are to enter this kingdom. It's a necessity. There's no spiritual life without it. You cannot even see the kingdom because of your spiritual deadness. Not even see. There's no other way even to see the kingdom of God than for God to do a work. Sometimes that's a hard thing to grasp with, but yet, nonetheless, it's true. That's why it's a must. No one who is dead in trespasses and sins can make himself born again. Lord knows we've all tried. It is impossible. Yet with God, it is possible. That's the amazing thing. But how is this to be accomplished? Jesus uses the example of the wind and the work that the Spirit does. Quite a good illustration. That's something that Nicodemus could easily grasp. And in using this illustration, what it does do convey or should have conveyed to Nicodemus is, Nicodemus, you can't do it. You have no power to do it. As brainy, as, as good of a brain you might have, as, as religious as you might be, it's the Spirit's work. You have no power. And that's why this must in this conversation here shows the necessity that's revealed because it says, Nicodemus, you can't do it as good as you are. It's impossible. And believe me, PhDs don't like to hear that. No, I'm not against education, by the way. Don't get that. <laughs> don't take that away. Education is a good thing. So there must be. And here this, there is this necessity revealed, as I said, that Nicodemus cannot fulfill the requirements here, even to see the kingdom of God. Let's move on to the second point that I have here. It's John 3.14 where he says, Even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Or we can say it in other words, Jesus is the answer to the necessity that is revealed. Let's look at verses 9 through 21. Jesus, or Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? 
Most assuredly or truly, truly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify, what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved that world that, that, who, that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not his, send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. Now Jesus continues with Nicodemus, and he refers Nicodemus back to the Old Testament passage found in Numbers 21, 4 through 9. Jesus makes reference to the time in the wilderness when the people of Israel rebelled against the Lord. And he sent serpents among them, if you remember that story. And they were bitten, and many of them were beginning to die. And, and many were on the very edge of death. And this is something that Nicodemus, knowing his Old Testament, could relate to. We look for in teachable moments. This is one Nicodemus. This is a teachable moment. Will you accept it? Will you receive it? Will you understand what Jesus is saying here? And Moses here was instructed to tell them to make a, to, to make a bronze servant, to set a place on a high pole, so that everyone who saw it or who came could see it. Anyone who looked upon that serpent would be healed and not perish. Jesus goes on to explain to Nicodemus also that the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whosoever looks or believes in him should not perish. He's drawing a parallel point to what this passage truly means in the time when the kingdom of God is coming and is even at hand. He says you must look or believe in him and you will not perish but have eternal life. Just as there was no other way for those bitten by the serpents to survive, but to look on that one prepared, that brazen serpent, to, you know, on that high pole, Jesus is saying, I'm the one to be lifted up. But he refers to himself as the Son of Man. But the Son of Man is to be lifted up. It's the same thing. Just as those people in the wilderness were to look and to survive, to be given life, so must you look to the Son of Man, the one who is to be lifted up. There's only one remedy. One. There, is, there aren't multiple remedies. There's only one. <clears throat> and of course, did Nicodemus understand that? Probably not at first. 
is much more that Nicodemus needed to see and to learn and to understand as the Spirit worked in his own heart. But it was the Father's good pleasure to make this provision. They must, they must, they must. It's a hard word for us to understand. They must look to Jesus. We must look to Jesus or we perish. You can't get any more simple than that. There is no other provision made for sin, for redemption, for forgiveness, for justification, for eternal life except in Jesus. The Son of Man who here is going to be lifted up in not too long a time. And it's the one whom we have sinned against. This is what Nicodemus, you and I, are called to do. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. It's a free invitation to come. Like the Israelites, that, like I said, were bitten and dying, were instructed to look at their bronze serpents. And again, we're called to look to Christ. Lifted high up. Jesus, the Son of Man. Well, this call to look is an interesting word that Jesus uses himself. And perhaps for our purpose this morning, I want to read something out of Spurgeon's uh, testimony because I think he deals with it rather nicely in his own way. But in a way, while Charles Spurgeon in his youth was not a Pharisee, yet he had the same kind of privileges as uh, Nicodemus did. He writes here, in my conversion, the very, the very point lay in making the discovery that I had nothing to do but to look to Christ, and I should be saved. I believed that I had been a very good, attentive hearer. My own impression about myself was that nobody ever listened much better than I did. For years, as a child, I tried to learn the way of salvation. And either I did not hear it said forth, which I think I cannot quite have been, it cannot quite have been the case, or else I was spiritually blind and deaf and could not see it and could not hear it. But the good news that I was as a sinner to look away from myself to Christ as much startled me and came as fresh to me as any news I ever heard in my life. Have I never read my Bible? Yes, and I read it earnestly. Have I never been taught by Christian people? Yes, I had, by mother and father and others. Had I not heard the gospel? Yes, I think I had. And yet, somehow, it was like a new revelation to me that I was to believe and live. I confess to have been tutored in piety, put into my cradle by prayerful hands, and lulled to sleep by songs concerning Jesus. But after having heard the gospel continually with line upon line, precept upon precept, here much and there much, yet when the word of God came to me with power, it was as new as if I had been lived among the unvisited tribes of Central Africa and had never heard the tidings of the cleansing fountain filled with blood drawn from the Savior's veins. It just... All new. But let me read something else. <clears throat> and you have heard this before, but it's in, in his own words, it's uh, uh, quite interesting. I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair until now had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning while I was going to a certain place of worship. When I could go no further, I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there may have been a dozen or 15 people. I had heard of the primitive Methodists, how they sang so loudly that they made people's heads ache, but that did not matter to me. I wanted to know how I might be saved. 
And if they could tell me that, I did not care how much they made my headache. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or tailor or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. Now it is well that preachers should be instructed, but this man was really stupid. I mean, this is what he says. <laughs> so, <clears throat> he was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason he had little else to say. The text was, Look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. The preacher began thus, My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, Look, now look and don't take a great deal of pains. It ain't lifting up your foot or your finger. It's just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, Look unto me. Aye, he said in his broad Essex, Many on ye are looking to yourselves, but there's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Some look to God the Father. No, look to him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Some on you say, we must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ. The text says, look unto me. And the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me. I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I am hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I am dead and buried. Look unto me, I am risen again. Look unto me, I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me, look unto me. And when he had gone about that length and managed to spin out his ten minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger, just fixing his eyes on me. And if you knew in my heart, he said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did. But I had not been accustomed to have such remarks made in the pulpit. Not my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow. It struck right home. He continued... And you will always be miserable, miserable in life, miserable in death, if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted, as only primitive Baptist could do, Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but to look and live. And at once, I saw the way of salvation. You have not what else he, I knew not what else he said. I did not take much notice of it, but I was so possessed with that one thought. <clears throat> like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up, the only people who looked and were healed, so it was to me. I have been waiting to do that, those fifty things. But when I heard that word look, without a charming sound of words, it seemed to me, oh, I had looked until I had almost almost looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. Then in that moment I saw the sun, and I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ.
with a simple faith which looks alone to him. So you see, Spurgeon can speak directly to the whole issue of look. And I trust we can as well. You see, if you will not believe in him, you remain in your guilt and your condemnation. You will perish under God's wrath and judgment. It is the place of the damned. It's a word we don't use very much, but think about it. If you are condemned, it is the place of the damned. And that's where you'll spend eternity. So while you have opportunity, look. This is what Jesus left Nicodemus with as with the conversation was ended. Wow. Great stuff. Needful stuff. So Nicodemus learns that he must be born again, but that is the spirit of God's work. And then he is directed, believe or look to the one who is to be lifted up. That is Jesus, the Son of Man, and he will have eternal life. He will have everlasting life. Now this believing in Jesus includes all that Jesus claimed to be for himself to his people in the Gospels. And of course, you're not, you can't parse Jesus up into pieces. You have to take them all or nothing. I kind of wonder what Nicodemus must have thought as he parted from Jesus. <clears throat> I know that he walked out into the night. He was still not born again. And we walked out into the night. There's the double metaphor. Certainly it was physical night, but yet he was still under condemnation at this point. That's the danger he was in. John, let's go to my third point and the last point. He must increase, but I must decrease. Or we could say this. Jesus is the continued necessity and its end. Let's read verses 22 through 26. Quickly as we go through this. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came to the land of Judea, And there he remained with them and baptized. Now John was also baptizing in Enon near Salem because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized where John had not yet been thrown into prison. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification or the Jew rather about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified. Behold, He is baptizing, and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all, and he who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all, and what he has seen and heard, that he testifies and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true, for he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God does not give the Spirit by measure. The Father loves the Son, and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, 
And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. In terms of muster, the necessity identified, it might go unnoticed, but there's, like I said, there's one more in this chapter. And there is a connection between the first two, because this is really a continuation on of those musts. It is not, not uncommon to hear sometimes, and perhaps we might have even taught this ourselves at one time, but I don't think it's, we hit, see that here in this, in this church. But certainly some might think that once you're born again, that's more or less the, that's it. Not a whole lot more to do in terms of growth, in terms of progression in thought and spiritual life. We, some live in that, in that way. <clears throat> But that's not where we're to stay. Most of us know it's, it's, it's not supposed to be that way. We've been hearing in Colossians series past Sundays that it is to be quite different for those who are united in Christ. And it's, from that standpoint, it's been an excellent series. You see, there is new life in Christ, and we know that. And our identity in Christ is new also, and should there be all that follows in that identity, all in that new life, and that new family. That's certainly true. And, of course, it shows the preeminence and the supremacy of Christ. This is part of that kingdom living. We need to contrast this, or we need to see in contrast between the man of the flesh as Nicodemus is presented and the man of the spirit as John the Baptist is presented here. There is quite a contrast. Nicodemus at this point is a man of the flesh, offering himself to God as he is, with all his credentials and all his recommendations, and it doesn't matter. Here, the man of the spirit, John the Baptist, is quite a different individual. Here we see John the Baptist busy about the work of God, that which is, he has been called to do as the forerunner of Christ. He has already been identified Christ and identified him publicly. with him since, of course, Jesus is baptism saying that this is the Christ. He literally points him out. This is the Christ. This is the Messiah. This is the anointed one. And when his disciples, John's disciples, point that all are going to Jesus, John states an obvious but necessary thing in verse 27. It says, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from above. He is acknowledging in bowing to God's sovereign will and plan. Some might see this. He goes on to say that his joy is, is being fulfilled. But, you know, if we were to go out and ask people to read this and understand, some might see this joy and the whole loss of popularity as something that can't exist side by side. But it doesn't matter. With John, it just does not matter. He's focused on the thing that he has to do, the thing that he's been called to do. That's the only thing that matters. <clears throat> so what if he becomes less popular and he loses a number of his disciples? That's the way it's supposed to be. Well, that's, that's the way it ought to be. Popularity or power was the farthest thing from John's mind. He didn't care for it, but what he cared for was pointing to the lamb and completing his task. Like I said, this was all that mattered. 
And while he is yet alive and his heart is beating, John the Baptist makes, every, makes the statement every true and faithful believer must make and delight in. Not only must the sand be lifted up, but he must increase. Jesus must not only be lifted up and looked upon, he must increase in those who look upon him. He must increase. The word, the second must there is not really in the original. It just says he must increase, I decrease. The practice of this is the death, death of idolatry from every idol, whatever we might be tempted to love. It is by the necessity of the new life from Christ that it should be such a natural statement for every believer, but we do struggle with it. It reflects the new life, the new identity, the new joy found in the Savior. But this joy more specifically reflects not on the new life that we found in Christ, but the continued joy we find in serving him. It's the continued joy that John is talking about here, where he says he must increase, I must decrease. Not merely just the initial joy. It goes much beyond that. And of course, this is experiential, or this is part of the Christian experience. This should be the normal Christian experience, not the abnormal Christian experience. It is one picture of our sanctification process, if we could put it in those terms. It's not a natural thing for a sinner to say. Nicodemus could not yet speak this, though he was an extremely religious man. And he could obviously probably put us to shame with what he knew of the Bible. We often struggle with this because of personal sin, but this is the nature of our spiritual warfare, isn't it? We know that there is no neutrality in this, and we have no strength of our own to do it. I mean, for Jesus to increase... Um, we've got to deal with sin. And we've talked about that in Sunday school and things like that. And John has talked about that. The pastor has talked about it. Pastor John from the pulpit. We've got to be radical. Sin must be killed. And this is the work of the Spirit as he works in us. And so we need to seek his help to do so. Now, if we had no power in ourselves in the looking and to save us, we certainly have no power in ourselves in far as his increasing and us decreasing. No, it's the work of the Spirit as well. In the degree to which Jesus increases, not only will God be glorified, but fruit will abound. We know this too. What follows, though, is in verse 31 is rather interesting to the end of the chapter in the sense that here is where John declares in his, in his declaration or narrative concerning the Lord Jesus. It is the clearest thing that, that we have written in the Bible that John declares of the, of the Savior. Read that over again when you get home. That's John's own testimony. Pretty impressive. Pretty clear as to what he's speaking and, and how he's lifting him up. Perhaps, I don't know how much time I have left, but... Uh, just take, a, just take a minute and read it through. This is, this is John the Baptist's narrative. Look at what he's saying about the Christ, how much he knew, how much he understood, how much he sought to lift him up and, and point others to him. He says, he who comes from above, verse 31, he who comes from above is above all. 
He who is of the earth is earthly, and speaks the earth, speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard, he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. For he whom God has sent and speaks the words of God, for God does not give the Spirit by measure. The Father loves the Son and given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. That's a pretty clear word of declaration for the last Old Testament prophet, handing things off to Christ and saying, I must decrease. The glory is all yours. In a few words, let me, of summary, let me say this. The word must is a common thread that runs through John chapter 3. I hope you see that. And it, and it has a beginning and it has an end. It's based upon divine necessity, and we know, we've seen that it's all of grace. The first declares that you must be born again, and it shows the great need of sinners. The second must point you to the one to whom you must look upon and away from yourself. You know, if you're, going to, if you're going to look at something, you've got to look away from yourself. You can't do two things at the same time. And the third is, the third must then continues with this new life and rises to cultivate where Jesus was made most of when we're made small. And of course, in the end, what does this say? Jesus is all glorious. That's where we have to end up with. And so, <clears throat> when William Carey, this is be my last sentence or two here. When William Carey, one of the great missionaries to India, lay dying, he turned to a friend and said, When I am God, don't talk about William Carey. Talk about William Carey's Savior. I desire that Christ alone might be magnified. That was on his deathbed. That's a great statement of faith. May be so with us because there's no neutrality. He either increases or we do. And we must decrease. He must increase. So music team, I guess you can come up. Thank you.